In this episode of IM3 Investigates, I'm joined by Pat Jennings, Head of Policy, Knowledge and External Affairs at CRWM, and Patrick Mann, Strategic Assistant to the CEO at RAP. Pat is a member of IM3 and is the voice of CRWM in resource and waste policy. She's been with CRWM for 12 years, and prior to that, she worked as a freelance media advisor in the sector and was at RAP for four years too. Patrick has been with RAP for more than 16 years. During that time, he led RAP's government affairs work, including both policy analysis and political engagement. He started his career as a civil servant and has also worked for a trade association. Together, we'll be looking at some of the issues around recycling, especially in the light of Recycle Week. Pat and Patrick, hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. Um, Patrick, can you just start off by briefly introducing us to RAP? What is RAP? Absolutely. Thank you, Colin. Um, RAP's a UK-based global charity. We're focused on reducing waste, improving resource efficiency and creating a circular economy. Uh, We're responsible for delivering the policy agendas of the governments in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. But we also work outside the UK, including with the EU, uh, the UN and some individual countries such as South Africa, Canada and Singapore. Thank you very much indeed. Pat, CRWM, could you briefly introduce that for us, please? Okay. Uh, yes, thank you, Colin. Uh, CRWM is the leading professional body for the resources and waste management sector, and we represent around 5,500 individuals across the UK, Ireland, and also overseas. Um, it was established just over 100 years ago, and we're a non-profit making organisation that seeks to promote professional competence and standards across the sector, uh, promote best practice, uh, develop education and training and provide information on key waste related issues. Uh, We also work with our body of knowledge that our members represent to inform and influence the policy and regulatory framework for resource and waste management. Thank you very much indeed, Pat. So, um, Patrick, we're, we're, we're gathered here to get together today, as it were, uh, to talk about recycling. But perhaps we ought to start off by saying, well, what, why does recycling matter? What are the, the benefits? Why, why do we bother doing it? OK, well, the key issue, I think, um, is to say the point of recycling waste is that by recycling, you turn it back into raw materials that can be used to make a new product. And that's important because by doing that, you typically save significant amounts of carbon and water, for example, compared to if you made that new product out of virgin materials instead. So the issue is about going around the life cycle and saving energy and water and reducing greenhouse gas emissions because the alternative to recycling material is digging stuff out of the ground uh, and making it into raw materials. And that takes an awful lot of energy and water and other materials, as your members will know. So, for example, to just give some simple examples, um, if you recycle a typical aluminium drinks can, that saves enough energy to power a television for four hours. On the other hand, if you recycle a half-litre plastic bottle, typical plastic bottle you, you take on out and about with you, uh, you buy from a shop, that saves enough energy to power a light bulb for nine hours. But in addition, it's not just a consumer issue. Recycling is also a key part of uh, several key industries' drives to resource efficiency. So, for example, the glass and steel sector uh, both make uh, a big point about the fact that by recycling their material in closed-loop systems back into raw materials, into secondary raw materials, uh, they save significant amounts of energy and water that help them towards their climate targets as industries. Is it always worth recycling, or are there some materials where recycling doesn't add up? 
there are some materials and in particular some uh, uh, types of um, of products where it may not make uh, a great deal of sense. So, for example, uh, your typical um, uh, oven-ready meal, um, if you cook that in uh, the oven, um, eat most of it and then leave large amounts of food smeared all over it and, and burnt onto it um, from being in the oven for an hour or whatever, um, it may not be worth in energy terms, trying to recycle that plastic uh, tray um, that's got uh, got food all over it. It might be simpler to simply um, put that to energy from waste. But there's relatively small numbers of materials where it's not worth recycling. Um, it's normally the, the bigger issue is the, um, the format of uh, the product you've got and whether that uh, creates difficulties or is contaminated. Thanks, that, that helps. So Pat, um I know that uh, recycling is done differently in different parts of the UK. Um, can you just explain a little bit of how that works across the UK for us? Yes, certainly. The uniformity comes in the form of the collection of household waste being a statutory duty on, on local authorities uh, under environmental protection legislation. And it's paid for by and large, although with some central government support through the council tax system. Um, so almost every household in the UK, barring the odd rural remote household, uh, has their waste collected at their doorstep. But that's the point really at which the uniformity stops and we start seeing some differences uh, come in. So certainly in, in Wales and Scotland, for example, uh, most uh, waste collections are run by local authorities directly, so they have an in-house service, um, whereas in England and Northern Ireland you have much more of a combination of in-house services, but also services that are contracted out to the private sector. Uh, levels of funding also vary, so um, Wales, for example, has put a lot of money into uh, recycling services in the past few years. Uh, Scotland and England, for example, have provided less funding. Um, and also it is a local sovereignty issue. So um, often in our sector you come up against the argument that waste collection services are a local decision. Uh, so that accounts for some of the variability you see in the types, the types of collection methods uh, that are applied, whether that's separate collection or commingle collection for example. Um, on, in terms of business waste, that's a commercial service that's provided and again some um, local authorities provided to what they call a trade waste service which is their commercial waste service which is charged uh, but there are also plenty of private contractors out there providing the same service um, and for businesses payments are calculated on a range of terms um, that can be by weight, by the number of bin lifts by the number of materials they segregate. Some councils are unitary, so both waste disposal and collection services all fall uh, within the same um, department. Uh, but we also have two-tier authorities where the district will be the collecting authority and the county is the disposal authority. Um, there is a lot of discussion at the moment about the unintended consequences of that. There are often tensions between the collection and disposal. Uh, and when you're pulling towards similar objectives of reducing the amount of waste to landfill and increasing recycling, sometimes those two-tier systems don't work as well as they could. Um, one of the things that uh, I've heard people say is that waste services, recycling services, whatever, are the only public service that everybody gets at every stage of their lives. Does that go some way to explaining why they can be so emotive in local government? 
Absolutely, it is one of the frontline services and it is one of those things that people notice and care about and will complain about if it's if it's not done in a particular way or, or often if changes are implemented. Um, so yes, it becomes a local political issue, it can become a national political issue as well. There was a, a lot of debate at one point around um, weekly collections versus fortnightly collections, what households you know, should should be allowed, should be enabled to have in terms of how often their uh, waste was collected. And that does cause problems in terms of policy making, uh, where you're looking to restrict certain services and encourage others. Uh, you do guess this tension between ambition and and what is delivered at a local level and what local MPs can do and don't support. Yeah, I think it can be very contentious indeed. Um, so Patrick, if I'm a householder in the UK, what can I recycle and, and where can I recycle it? Okay, the question of what you can recycle um, is there's quite a lot of uniformity to it. So there's a set of um, uh, materials that you'd expect to be able to um, put out uh, into your bin uh, at your house, wherever you are in the country, including paper, cards, um, plastic bottles, um, and uh, several other materials. Those are pretty much uniform across the country, but there are several other materials where what you can do will depend on your local authority and what your local authority chooses to collect will at least in part depend on whether they've got a ready market for that material somewhere relatively local. So to take a typical example, uh, the rather obvious problem with glass is it's extremely dense um, and glass is a relatively low value material. So you don't want to have to spend large amounts of fuel taking it halfway across the country uh, to recycle it. So um, some in some parts of the country, glass may be more readily collected because there's a local reprocessor that wants that glass than in other areas of the country where it would have to be shipped halfway across, uh, across town. Um, so there's first that question of what you can recycle. The question of uh, of where you can recycle it um, will be largely at curbside, so largely outside your house with the, the, the bins you've got from your local council. Uh, for some items, um, such as, for example, uh, bulky waste or furniture, um, large items, you may have to uh, get in touch with a council specifically to ask for that material to be collected from your house. It won't be routinely collected. Um, for other materials, such as waste electrical equipment or electronic um, equipment or batteries, for example, you may need to take those to your local household waste recycling centre, um, which is sometimes called a civic community site. Those are centres that are run by your local authority. They may have sort of two, three, four, maybe depending on the size of authority, it might be 10, might be 15 of them uh, dotted around your local area. And if you go onto your local authority website, you'll be able to find out where they are, when they're open, what they take, uh, when you can take things to them. One other point I think that's worth making is um, there is a difference typically between urban authorities and rural authorities. So if you live in an urban area, um, then typically housing density is higher. So the recycling collection vehicle will be able to collect a lot of material in a small distance because it's got lots of houses to go around. But on the other hand, it may have difficulty accessing flats. It may have difficulty travelling down narrow roads, particularly if they've got cars double parked on both sides. Um, and so there are pros and cons there in, a, in an urban area. On the other hand, 
if you go to a rural area, then uh, access probably going to be less of an issue, but a typical collection round may be a lot longer because there's larger distances between the houses. So you get all sorts of pros and cons as to where you are, what impact that has on the material you can collect and where else you have to go if it isn't collected at curbside. Thank you. Um, so, Pat, IOM3's got members all over the world. I know that RAP operates internationally. I suspect the CRWM has international members as well. So what kinds of uh, recycling systems exist out there? Does everyone have good recycling systems and how do the different UK systems compare? Uh, there's, there's quite a lot of variability, uh, as you would expect, really. Um, we have some very high recycling countries. Uh, Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands have stood out for a number of years. And it has to be said they've been doing it for a long time. The UK, which sort of sits in the middle in terms of the EU ranking, has been recycling for a relatively short time compared to some of them. Um, some of the highest recyclers um, operate a system known as pay as you throw or save as you recycle. Um, and under this system, householders are charged for their black bag waste which incentivizes them to recycle as much as they can and, and this is a, a particular method that is associated with higher recycling levels um, but close to home though Wales has achieved a recycling rate of around 60% without using uh, a kind of pay as you throw save as you recycle um, mechanism uh, it's the top recycling nation in the UK uh, around the third best in Europe and the fourth best in the world so it, it has it has done exceptionally well and it's done this by having quite a strong bias towards separate collection of different recyclables as opposed to commingled which um, maintains a, a higher quality right at that early sorting stage and by making the funding available that I mentioned earlier to councils to roll out um, recycling services and also food waste services and, and that makes a big difference to the recycling rate. Um, but looking more widely out towards the rest of the world, most of us take having our waste collected on our doorstep for granted, uh, but it's worth reflecting that this is not the case in many countries. Um, and some citizens may have to take their waste to communal collection areas. Um, and we think around one quarter of the world's population doesn't have access to any proper waste collection system at all. Uh, so there's, there's a real degree of, of, of variation in, in how the world can manage its waste and recycle. I think we'll come back to the international thing in a moment, perhaps. But um, you just mentioned about um, some countries having a, a longer track record of recycling. The UK overall recycles high 40% now of uh, materials. And actually, in, in some respects, it's not bad, given that we started at 2 or 3% less than 20 years ago to be where we are now. We did. We really only started Colin in 2000, um, which is when, and um, you know, that's partly as a result of some good work by RAP, uh, you know, which Patrick will know all about, um, which looked at a range of measures from a consumer campaign uh, called Recycle Now, which is still going through to some market development measures to make sure that there were uh, good and robust markets for recycled materials. So we, we quadrupled our recycling. In, in not much more than a decade, which was a fantastic performance. But we have kind of stalled in recent past, haven't we? We, we don't seem to be able to get past the, the high 40s and, and certainly don't look like we're likely to meet the target of recycling half of our household waste this year. 
That's true, Colin. Um, and I think we're not alone in this. Um, I think other countries have found the same problem. What we've done is we've captured the low-hanging fruit. That we've we've encouraged those people who really do care about the environment to recycle. Uh, we've set up systems to recycle the most commonly. Uh, most common materials that are thrown away uh, so the next step is going to be that much more difficult so we've got to tackle more difficult materials uh, textiles batteries uh, waste electric electronics and electricals uh, things that um, come in smaller quantities so they're more expensive to collect things that have hazardous properties so they have to be treated differently uh, so there we are we do have to look at changing the policy framework now to try and target some of the most more difficult areas. I think that's a rich area to talk about. But I wanted to come back to this developing nation point or or lack of access in developing nations to to good quality waste management systems. Do you want to say a little bit about what the the consequences that we see from from that the fact that they don't have this thing that we all think of um, uh, or take for granted really here in the UK? Uh, yes, absolutely. There are multiple consequences, really. One is a, a kind of local environment and public health issue. Uh, so in areas um, where there is no waste collection, waste piles up in the local area, it's often burnt, uh, which leads to uh, emissions which are harmful to the local population. Uh, it contaminates watercourses, uh, in some cases blocks them. Uh, often, particularly plastics, end up entering watercourses and then become uh, one of the major sources of the marine plastic plastics pollution uh, that the uh, the Blue Planet program highlighted uh, so effectively and that we're all much more aware of now. Of course, that plastics leaking into the environment also turns into microplastics, which is a less visible but equally, um, equally damaging consequence. Um, it also means that those countries where there isn't any local waste management and recycling, uh, they can't capture the economic benefit of putting these materials back to use as well. So um, they're frequently poor countries where the economy is poor uh, and where better resource management would uh, would stimulate, um, you know, a better, a better economic prospect. So, Patrick, we've touched on this a bit already, but for, for, for RAP and the work that you've been doing, what are the main technical and societal challenges in, in recycling and recycling more? As you say, Colin, there's, there's several that um, Pat's already just picked up on, but uh, perhaps just to expand on some of those. On the technical side, I guess there's two big ones I'd highlight. One is uh, complexity of materials um, and complexity of, of products. So to take a typical example, if you've got a piece of composite packaging, uh, most obvious example of which is a Tetra pack. Um, so uh, that box that you get uh, milk and various other liquids in, um, the problem with that is a Tetra Pak is a very efficient mechanism of getting that liquid to the consumer, but it's a complete nightmare when it comes to the end of its life when you've used all the liquid up because it's uh, a bound together um, uh, piece of packaging that's mostly paper, but it also has very small amounts of aluminium and plastic bonded on the inside. Uh, that's necessary to keep the liquid fresh, uh, to keep oxygen out um, and uh, to enable you to, uh, whatever that liquid is that you're drinking, to have that and uh, not get ill. But the problem with it is when you've bonded all that stuff together uh, to create the packaging, when it comes to the end of its life, it's very hard to recycle it because you have to unbond it all before you can recycle the paper. 
so that's one example. Another example, which again Pat alluded to earlier, uh, electronic devices um, typically going to have lots and lots of different materials in them, lots of different sub uh, products within them. If you actually wanted to reuse all of those things, you'd need to disassemble the entire product, and that's incredibly complex. If you don't disassemble the product, the risk is that what you end up doing is basically just smashing it all up and pulling out the uh, most valuable um, bulk metals from it and losing almost all the rest of the value. So that's not a very good way of recycling it. On the other hand, if you move from technical to societal problems, um, the, the biggest one probably is the basic point that we live in a consumerist society. Um, the key things that people are looking for an awful lot of the time with the products they buy, and particularly the packaging around those products, is speed, ease and simplicity. So people want something that they can pick up in the supermarket, take away with them, use, and then chuck the packaging away uh, once it's no longer of use to them. The key question there is what the designer, what the product manufacturer and what the product designer were thinking when they made the material. And generally, in an awful lot of cases, they're not thinking about what happens at the end of life. So a very good example is takeaway coffee cups, disposable coffee cups. They are designed for what they're used for. They're not designed for recycling at end of life. Beyond the design phase is also a question of behaviour. So uh, we as consumers, again, I was just saying, uh, if we don't value something, we chuck it out. And we don't generally care that much what happens to it afterwards. So one of the big issues is getting consumers to think and crucially to act differently from how they do now. And that ultimately is a whole point of, uh, of Recycle Week um, this week. Uh, and I'll talk a bit more about that later, I'm sure. Um, but to give an example of how you might change that, uh, there's a lot of discussion going on in the UK at the moment about the introduction potentially of a deposit return scheme for drinks packaging. The idea here is that when you go and buy uh, your drink bottle, um, uh, you pay a small deposit for the bottle. You then go away, drink the drink, and then take the bottle back to uh, either the place you bought it or to another supermarket, um, and you get your deposit back. So the small deposit on the bottle encourages you to take the thing back to somewhere where it can be collected for recycling rather than simply dumping it in the street um, or throwing it in the wrong bin or any other behaviour that ends up with the material not being recycled. Um, and the third thing I would say beyond technical and societal, there is also a key economic issue here. Um, it's, particularly in the UK context, it's important to recognise that recycling is an industry. Um, there is some subsidy there uh, in terms of the way that government structures things, but fundamentally recycling is an industry and it needs to pay for itself. So, for example, um, almost all councils collect plastic drinks bottles for recycling. The reason being that plastic drinks bottles are big and bulky and easy to separate out from other waste in the waste stream. They're typically only made from three different types of plastic, so it's easy to work out what kind of plastic your drinks, a particular drinks bottle is made of. And ultimately, the material they're made of is valuable and worth selling on to someone at a profit. On the other hand, many councils do not collect plastic pots, tubs and trays, so the sort of oven-ready meal tray and all the other um, uh, assorted types of plastic packaging. The reason being, they can be hard to separate out uh, they get contaminated with food, as I was saying earlier. Um, they're made from lots of different types of plastic and the actual material has relatively low value. So as, a, as an example, plastic drinks bottles, easy to recycle and worth doing. Plastic pots, tubs and trays, hard to recycle and not necessarily worth doing economically. So 
clearly, Pat, we've got a quite a complex landscape as to what is recycled where here in the UK. Um, and, and I guess some of this is, is why people are talking about the need for more consistency across the piece. And I know the government's talking about more consistent collection. Do you want to say a little bit about what that looks like it's going to mean and um, where, where you think the, the industry is coming from on that? Yeah, certainly, Connor. Um, so I think CIWM supports the concept of consistent collection and, and, and it is essentially along the lines of the Welsh blueprint. Scotland and England and Northern Ireland are moving in the same direction. Uh, Scotland certainly now has a household recycling charter which uh, sets out a number of principles around consistent collection uh, along similar lines to Wales. Um, and England is now consulting on a consistent collections policy framework that will do the same um, across England and I think it is important we still have a situation where some local authorities as Patrick said collect plastic bottles some collect pots tubs and trays and plastics is a particular area where there's a lot of consumer confusion and if we can uh, get a uniform approach to plastics uh, we are likely to be able to recycle a lot more than we do at the moment. Uh, Food waste is another important area Uh, currently only around a half of English councils offer food waste collections um, and recycling food waste is has got to be one of those priorities in terms of delivering that step change to get up to the 65% recycling that we that we want in the future. Um, so the consultation that's out at the moment uh, will look at setting a core set of materials for local authorities to collect um, and it will provide some statutory guidance to uh, to reinforce that. Um, and I think the point that, that Patrick made about um, the value proposition for recycling is very important here. Uh, one of the reasons we have ended up with the variation that we've got um, is to do with if market prices for materials, the availability of infrastructure, um, the degree of um, expense that needs to be put into a particular type of material to turn it back into something useful for the economy. Um, So there are other changes uh, in the policy framework that sit alongside the move towards greater consistency which will help with that and will ensure that there's more money in the system uh, to make sure that um, local authorities can can provide the range of services that we know will help to provide this uplift in recycling. And Patrick, I know that RAP's been doing lots of work over the last, um, what, 10 years or so, perhaps more, uh, with local authorities to help them improve their recycling. Apart from greater consistency and the points that Pat was talking about, what what other things really matter in how a local authority constructs its um, waste and recycling services? Well, there's there's a lot of uh, different issues to consider, but I, I think I'll probably highlight five of them. Um, so if we start first with structure, and we've already talked about this a bit, but the issue of uh, the structure of uh, local government across the UK has a big impact. So as Pat was mentioning earlier, um, you've got areas of the country where there's uh, two-tier authorities. You've got waste disposal authorities, typically county councils, and waste collection authorities, typically district councils, um, and other areas where you've just got one council doing all services for an area, uh, so-called unitaries. Um, the interaction between different councils, particularly in those two-tier areas, can have a, a major impact, as can their size and their scale, um, and ultimately the relationship between them. So we've had... Um, situations in the past where in a two-tier area, 
um, all the district uh, councils in a in a county have joined together with the county and come together. So they're still individual authorities, but they've come together to create a, a joint waste strategy. And that's been successful in some areas in driving up recycling rates because they're talking to each other, cooperating with each other, uh, doing similar things across the piece, um, which also helps with the communications angle. A second issue is budgets. Um, it's a, a very much a non-trivial issue. Um, council budgets have been significantly cut since 2010, and that's had a real impact in all sorts of ways. But probably most obviously for this debate, the biggest problem with that is it makes it very difficult for local authorities to be able to find the money to invest up front to realise savings later on. So there's a, a real challenge there um, on the money side. A third issue is infrastructure, um, and this means lots of different things. So at one level, it's the bins outside your house and whether you've got one bin, two bins, five bins, whether you've got bins or whether you've got boxes or whether you've got trays or whether you've got something else or just bags, um, all of that will have an impact on how you recycle and the extent to which your recycling is, is contaminated or uncontaminated. But there's a lot of infrastructure beyond that. So there's a question of what's the vehicle that drives round and picks up your recycling. Um, there are many different kinds of, uh, of recycling collection vehicle and they have different pros and cons as to the extent to which they separate out the materials and kept, keep them separated out or they put them all together for sorting at a so-called material recycling facility um, later on in the process. Those material recycling facilities themselves um, can be old or new uh, with lots of investments or less investments. And again, that can have a significant impact on the quality of the materials that come out at the other end. So you stick all of that together uh, and you end up with a potential impact on, uh, on the um, quality of the material and the amount of money you can get out of that material and therefore the investment proposition. Two other points I'd make as well. One is communications. This is often overlooked, but uh, it's frequently been the case that the difference between a successful change in a local recycling service and at the other end of the spectrum, one that ends up on the front page of the Daily Mail, um, is the quality of the communications to householders. You need to tell people early that you're going to be changing what the service is. You've got to explain very, very clearly what the change is and why it's being done. And you need to remind people before, during and after um, so that they know what they're doing and get used to the new service and get into the habits of what they're expected to do under the new service. If you don't do those things, uh, it's quite likely that the, ser the service improvement will not deliver the benefits that are expected. And the final point is politicisation. You touched on this a bit earlier, Colin, but um, waste collections have often become a political football in local politics um, uh, because, as you said, they're one of the few services from local government that basically everyone sees at every stage of their lives. One of the consequences of that is they get pulled out every time there's a local election campaign and you can end up with poor decisions being made um, purely to avoid uh, losing votes on the doorstep. Um, and that can be a real challenge uh, when people are trying to make the right decision um, as opposed to making the politically popular decision. So Pat, we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the policy initiatives going on uh, in resource and waste management policy in England and the UK at the moment. One that we hear a lot about at the moment is extended producer responsibility, particularly for packaging. Can you tell us a little bit about what is EPR and, and whether it's as important as some people seem to think? 
Yes, it is important. Um, it's a concept that has been around for a while and it basically puts the polluter pays principle into effect. So it, it puts an obligation on producers to pay for the costs of managing their products once they become a waste. In the UK, for example, we've had our producer responsibility for packaging uh, since 1997. Um, but what I think we're seeing at the moment through developments like the EU circular economy package is a renewed focus on the role of extended producer responsibility to manage products, manage them during their both the production stage and their waste stage um, to make sure that um, they're managed properly and that there's the money there to do so. Um, and it has the it has the opportunity to fundamentally change, I think, how we manage a whole range of waste streams. Um, but obviously, packaging is is very much in the focus at the moment. Um, so extended producer responsibility, as the UK is framing it at the moment, and and there will be another consultation early in 2021, um, will look to um, set up a, a, a regime of modulated fees. So producers will pay a fee depending on how uh, recyclable their um, piece of packaging is. Um, at the moment, the current system which we have at the moment, we estimate that it pays around 10% of the cost of actually managing that packaging once it becomes a waste. Uh, so this new system looks to recover 100% of that cost. Uh, so we are looking at a significant increase in terms of the fees that packaging producers will be paying. Um, but what is very um, welcome is that everybody in the supply chain has come together to have a look at this uh, big new policy framework and everybody is committed um, to actually making it work and what it will mean is that local authorities will receive a fee for the packaging that they collect and recover um, there will be money for uh, sorting and infrastructure uh, so what it should do is make sure that there's a much more uh, much better funded uh, and much more visible and transparent system for ensuring that packaging waste uh, is collected and recycled. So uh, will this not mean that prices go up for the consumer as well though? Potentially, yes. Um, I think we're, we're, we are looking at, um, I think, around £700 million of additional money that will be coming into the system, uh, and that will be through through fees to on producers. Uh, so I think there is an expectation that there will be um, potentially a small increase in cost in packaging. But when you look at the unit cost of a piece of packaging, it is very small. So uh, consumers, I think, are unlikely to notice that increase. Uh, but what it will do, um, packaging producers operate in a commercial environment. Uh, they will not want to put their prices up. So what you will see, what it will drive is not just, hopefully, improvements in the recyclability of packaging, but also in resource efficient design. So they'll be looking to use less material uh, in that packaging uh, to ensure that um, the cost um, additions can be, can be offset in that way. Uh, and that should be another benefit benefit of, of, of increasing the focus on um, the whole packaging design from, from manufacture right through to, to the end of pipe. Thank you. So, Patrick, we've talked quite a lot about household material and we've started to talk a little bit about other forms of waste. If, if I'm a business, what can I do or what must I do about my recycling and waste? That's a very good question, because the honest answer is... Uh, what must I do is not a huge amount at the moment. 
the key requirements on uh, a business is that they make sure that their waste is collected by a registered waste collector, so someone who's actually got a license to do this. Um, <clears throat> but beyond that, they're supposed to, in theory, think about the waste hierarchy and, in theory, consider what of their waste output could be recycled. But that's not enforced. So um, if you're a, an office business, for example, and you create a lot of waste paper, though obviously not at the moment as everyone's working from home, but under normal times, um, <clears throat> you, in most cases, you could very easily get that waste paper collected. And that's a really good waste stream, high quality office paper it has high value. But many offices don't do that because they have to get their residual waste, the stuff that's going to go to landfill or incineration, they have to get that collected. <clears throat> and if they ask the person, oh, can I also get some recycling done? It turns out that they'll need another bin and that'll cost them uh, for the extra bin. So it may be simplest and easiest and frankly cheapest for them to just have everything in one bin and send it off to landfill. Um, so they should recycle, but there's not much incentive to do so. However, uh, when DEFRA produced their resources and waste strategy at the end of 2018, one of the proposals in there, you've already talked about the household consistency proposals for making what local authorities do more consistent across the country. Those consistency proposals also extend to uh, business waste, to so-called municipal waste, which consists of household waste and waste that's like household waste, but from other sources such as offices um, and other businesses. This is going to be a huge challenge to implement consistency for um, business waste. Um, our data suggests there's another 2 million businesses and 20 million tonnes of recyclable waste that's going to be brought into the scheme uh, by these changes. Um, so it's going to need an awful lot of work to make this happen. But the intention is that by bringing that business waste into the consistency framework, um, you'll be able to get those businesses to recycle that material that currently aren't recycling it, you'll get an awful lot more material being recycled. And that will hugely help towards the target, which Pat mentioned earlier, of getting to 65% recycling by 2035. And, and Pat, we've talked about household and commercial material, but that's, what, 30% by weight of what the UK generates? What's the rest? What do we do with the rest? Okay, the rest uh, falls into various categories, uh, industrial, construction, demolition, and excavation, uh, and around 5 million tonnes of that is hazardous waste. Uh, so, um, and we have a varied record here. I mean, hazardous waste has to be treated separately anyway, uh, often requiring um, specialist disposal. Um, operations but for example non-hazardous construction demolition waste of which there's around 66 million tons uh, the recovery rate is around 90 percent um, but that's that 90 percent is achieved in the majority through things like backfilling operations and low-grade recovery so recycled aggregates things like that um, but the focus um, now is increasingly on um, efforts to reduce construction waste and and reduce the amount of waste coming um, from um, house and office construction um, through a range of different um, initiatives including modular off-site construction which has been shown to, to save waste, 
things like pre-demolition audits to make sure that as much recycling can happen as possible at the point of demolition so that uh, materials don't get mixed up. Um, a lot of uh, large house builders and, and uh, building companies still run site waste, man site waste management plans. Uh, these are no longer required under law as they once were. Um, but uh, a lot of you know ethical, responsible companies uh, still use them to try and make sure that they segregate as much waste as possible um, and it doesn't get mixed up. Um, so in terms of excavation waste, again, those tend to get used as, as backfilling operations. So there's more to be done. Um, industrial waste, I think, is one of the key areas that will come into the frame much more in future um, because, again, there's, there's a degree of hazardous substances in that industrial waste. But there's lots of opportunities for what we call industrial symbiosis, where what is a, a byproduct from one uh, industrial process can become um, a new uh, raw material for another process process. Um, so I think we will see more of that, a focus on, on stimulating and supporting more industrial symbiosis in the future. Patrick, you've already briefly mentioned um, Recycle Week 2020, and that's happening from the 21st of September, I think. Can you tell us a bit about Recycle Week in general, and also what is the 2020 theme looking at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're right, Colin. Uh, Recycle Week 2020 is from 21st to the 27th of September. Um, and it's the 17th outing for Recycle Week since it started back in 2004. The strap line for this year is Together We Recycle. And the aim of the week is to thank the nation for continuing to recycle despite all that's happened this year. So one of the things that we noticed and that um, Pat and I and many others have spent a lot of the last six months working on is responding to the implications of COVID for waste management and waste collections. Um, in the early phases, there were real questions about whether waste would be able to be collected by local authorities if their collection crews all became ill, for example. Um, or it might be collected, but then what happens when it gets to the sorting plants and the sorting plant isn't working because half their staff have gone down with COVID. So lots of issues there. Um, and overall, what we want to say in Recycle Week is to thank the public for continuing to put their stuff out for recycling and the industry, the whole sector, um, for making sure that material continues to be recycled. What we're going to do, uh, amongst other things, during Recycle Week, there'll be a set of iconic buildings that we lit up in green uh, to celebrate Recycle Week. So that's going to include the London Eye, um, London's Tower 42, the Blackpool Tower and the Gateshead Millennium Bridge, for example. We've got, as a new feature this year, we've got sponsorship from a lot of um, leading brands and they will be promoting Recycle Week as well. So we've got supermarkets like Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Asda and the Co-op. Uh, we've got people like Unilever, LucasAid, PepsiCo. And we've even got, for example, L'Oreal, Paris Elvive are apparently promoting Recycle Week uh, through the week by products that are sold, their, their shampoo products sold in boots um, will get 50p from each product that, uh, that is sold. So uh, all sorts of new things going on. Um, and as normally happens, local councils up and down the country will be promoting Recycle Week locally. So look out locally for what your local council's doing. But also, if, uh, if any of your members want to know more, have a look on our website, RecycleNow.com, or we've got various social media channels, um, and there'll be all sorts of information going up on there now and during the week. Pat, I know that CRWM has been very active during the pandemic in supporting resource and waste managers. What are the key things that come out of all of that activity for you guys? What did you do and what did you learn? 
Um, I think one of the things that that became um, very evident very quickly was uh, the dual role of the sector that is sometimes forgotten. So we we have a very clear public health remit and um, right early on in the in the COVID pandemic, even before the lockdown, it became evident that uh, waste and recycling was actually one of those critical services uh, that needed to be uh, supported. Um, and uh, that has continued throughout. And I think it's very welcome because often we forget that actually if waste isn't collected regularly, our local environment soon becomes a fairly toxic place. Um, and during COVID, you know, that, that uh, knowing that the bin men were still going to be, come, be coming and collecting our waste became very important for people. Um, but also, obviously, we are managers of material uh, and we do make sure material goes to the right places and gets turned into new things. And so I think that COVID-19 did shine a light a bit on which bits of the system are resilient and which bits aren't. Uh, so in general, uh, most of the main materials that you and I recycle every day uh, were, were relatively uninterrupted but things like textiles and waste electricals because household waste recycling centres had to close the flow of that material into the reprocessing sector uh, dried up so you started to get businesses that were used to having a feedstock come in not having it come in um, you know and it proved very difficult for parts of the sector to continue to operate um, so I think that that does show that shocks to the system um, can have an impact and we need to make sure that as we build back better and look at what green growth means, that making sure that we've got some resilience and um, you know buffer zones in, in, in our sector, it's really important. I think one of the other things that has struck me, um, and it's both a good and a bad, is that we clapped for our bin men, which I think is fantastic. Um, but we also left 30 tons of rubbish on a beach in Bournemouth in two days. So there's this real dichotomy between people saying, yes, we've loved COVID in terms of the clean air, being at home, the environment, you know, reconnecting with nature. We've loved that that space it's given us to do that. But at the same time, the minute lockdown restrictions were ended, um, you know, we were littering the countryside in volumes previously unheard of. Um, so I think it shows that we still have quite a long way to go in terms of, of educating each other, the public, all of us have have um, a, you know new sets of behaviors that I think we need to learn um, but the other thing that strikes me and I think it's part of being on this podcast today with you is that um, our sector and increasingly in our collab in our collaboration with others um, there's a lot of partnership working going on and I think if we're going to tackle some of these big challenges like marine plastics pollution and um, you know sort of improving our resource efficiency then that collaborative working across the supply chain from Tesco's to CIWM members to IOM3 members um, it's only by coming around sitting around the table understanding each other's perspectives and working together that we're, re we're re really going to be able to deliver some some genuine change. Thank you I think that's uh, some very good points you make there and um, that's been a really interesting and useful introduction to some of the issues around um, recycling. I've got a couple of uh, slightly less serious questions for you at the end. So for both of you, first of all, what's the one recycling behaviour you'd suggest we should all do at home at work if we don't already? And I'll start off with Patrick. Okay, I'll be really cheeky and give you three. 
Um, food waste, uh, if you've got a local food waste collection, as Pat said earlier, only about half of local councils do. But if you've got a local food waste collection, please do use it. Uh, one of the problems with food waste collections up and down the country is that they're introduced and then the actual take up by individuals across that area is quite limited. But food uh, has an incredibly high carbon impact, incredibly high water impact. So if you've got a food waste collection, please do use it. Um, it really does make a huge difference. Second one, wash and squash. So, for example, plastic milk bottles at home. Uh, when you finish them, uh, don't just chuck them in a recycling bin, um, dirty and um, uh, in their full volume. Um, just wash them out very quickly, rinse them out, and then squash them down and then put the lid back on. Um, that will just mean you can get more stuff in your recycling bin. And the third one is just remember you can recycle bathroom stuff too. So it's not just things that you find in the kitchen that can be recycled. Hairspray cans can be recycled. Shampoo bottles can be recycled. Um, uh, if you use toilet duck or similar cleaning products, those bottles can also be recycled. So um, make sure you recycle stuff from across the house, not just the stuff you find in your kitchen. Anything you'd like to add to that little list? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think on on the wash and squash point that Patrick made, um, I would add one of the one of the behaviours I've got into is just using my leftover washing up water to rinse out. Some people say, "Oh gosh, uh, you know, isn't it is isn't it um, more damaging to run the hot tap and rinse these things out?" Well, I just use that last bit of washing up water to rinse things out, um, which I find works well. Uh, and also, uh, please be mindful of what you do with your batteries. Um, so batteries can be recycled you can take them back to some some of the retailers um, where you buy electrical equipment you can also take them to your local household waste recycling center uh, but if you do put them in either the recycling or in your black bag um, then actually they are starting to cause fires particularly lithium batteries um, can be quite volatile uh, and we're seeing a lot more fires at waste sites and in, in waste collection vehicles as a result of batteries so uh, please think before you uh, recycle your battery and do it the right way. Thank you. And uh, the other question I was going to say is, um, what do people think they can recycle at home, but they probably can't? And Pat, I'm going to start with you, but you're not allowed to say batteries again. No, 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 I won't say batteries. Um, I think one of the things, uh, and it's an area for discussion, it will, it, it will come, come up under that packaging EPR uh, framework we've discussed, is pouches. Uh, so I think some people, pouches like you get soup or cat food in, um, do check on your uh, local authority website, your council website, to see if you can put them in. A lot of people think they're plastic, but actually they tend to be made up of a number of materials. They're sort of laminated uh, with the metallic laminates inside. So please do check uh, before you put them in the recycling. Patrick, what would you put in that category? Yeah, um, as well as uh, that kind of material, I'd also say uh, expanded polystyrene packaging materials. So the stuff that you find in the box with your whatever you get from Amazon, um, generally that's not recyclable, though we're working through uh, our UK plastics pack to try and do something about that and either phase it out and replace it with something that is recyclable or turn EPS into something that can be recycled. And the other one, um, which will sound very odd to people, but uh, nonetheless is a problem, is nappies. Um, uh, some people in this country seem to have a very odd idea that because nappies are largely made of paper, they can be recycled. But nappies, disposable nappies, this is, um, are very complex um, uh, material with paper and plastic and chemicals and cannot be recycled. So please don't pop them in your recycling bin if you haven't used all of them. <laughs> and please don't pop them in your and, recycling and if you have If you have, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. 
Well, thank you both very much indeed. That was really fun and really enjoyable. And uh, I wish you both well in pursuing Recycle Week. Thank you. Thank you very much.